Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hey, Amber. Glad to be back here. And also Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. I am back. Yay! The gang's all here. And uh, yeah, we're happy to have you back, Haley, especially this week. There is a little bit of sad news that we want to get to. I do have a legal angle here to explore in just a moment, but I did want to give Miss Knopf the floor as the resident Tom Brady fan. Touchdown Tom is stepping away, we think for real this time, and I just wanted to give you this space here to share your to share your thoughts. I appreciate that. I also want to be clear. I was raised a Patriots fan, grew up a Patriots fan. I am a fan of teams, not of individuals. Okay. And when Tom left us, he became dead to me. Oh, sure. That said, you know, he was a very important figure in my life for multiple decades. And yeah, a lot of emotions, you know, seeing seeing the man step away from the sport. I again, uh, it's unfortunate that he couldn't do that uh, in time to save his marriage. LOL. But <laughs> that's not for us to uh, comment on, perhaps. Well, no, well, no, I think you're wrong because <laughs> I think it is for us to comment on. And the reason is because. Well, Tom Brady leaves behind a huge legacy. He was a great athlete, one of the the, the best quarterback of all time. He the was best. an enormous he was an enormous weirdo in a lot of ways. Sure. And more importantly, for our purposes, he was a very prominent litigant, and uh, he got into a lot of legal dustups. And my colleague on the sports team, uh, Elaine Brisegno did a really fun little roundup of some of the greatest hits uh, that he had in that regard, led, of course, by the still pretty nascent FTX case, which we've talked about on this show. He's uh, listed among uh, hundreds of defendants in that case about sort of misleading the public about the nature of the risk of investing in crypto. Of course, the deflate gate litigation. Oh, that's my favorite. Right, well, because this actually- That was my favorite, Alex. Yeah. Primarily because, do you remember the courtroom sketch artist that drew him? Yeah. It's yeah. my favorite depiction of Brady that's ever existed. And I would love for it to come back up and me to be able to see it again out in the news. I just love yeah. it. Yeah. This he was a dark like a... time for me. I don't like <laughs> thinking about Deflategate. He looked like a rumpled vampire. And that case uh, Football actually... Frankenstein is what I thought. But <laughs> yeah, sure. well, yeah, he's in there. And <laughs> that case actually very important, you know, sort of, not not quite landmark level, but did did educate a lot of people about the way that uh, you know for for labor law, the way that professional athletes who are often who are bound by you know, to arbitrate disputes with their leagues can fight in court, but it's an uphill climb, and he of course eventually lost that litigation. But anyway, definitely check out Elaine's piece. Uh, she I, I had a, a small hand in kind of crafting it, but she did all the heavy lifting, and uh, I'm really happy with how it turned out. Well, I could, you know, obviously talk about Tom Brady all day, and perhaps I still will here today, but we need to shift gears into our actual show here because we've got a ton of great stuff to talk about. Alex and I just had a fascinating conversation with one of our bankruptcy reporters, Vince Sullivan, who walked us through this bombshell Third Circuit ruling from earlier this week in which the panel held that uh, Johnson & Johnson cannot use bankruptcy to to deal with um, 
you know, the billions of dollars in liability they're facing right now over talc claims. Um, so definitely stick around for that. But before we get to that, Amber, we have yet another Bravo update, don't we? Honestly, Haley, I mean, you and I <laughs> and a couple of the other colleagues we have at Law360, we do vie for the most critical beat here at the <laughs> company. And I would argue that that beat is Bravo or Real Housewives stars that are entangled in legal trouble. So I'm happy to be back on that grind. Here's what we have today. A federal grand jury in Los Angeles and another one in Chicago have indicted Girardi Keese founder Tom Girardi on 13 counts of wire fraud, four counts of criminal contempt, and that all stems from the firm's theft of millions of dollars from its clients. All right, I'll play my role as the Bravo agnostic here like I usually do. We have, of course, talked about Tom Girardi in the past, and in fact, we uh, our, our, uh, our exploratory offshoot, Law360 Explorers, did a whole podcast about Tom Girardi, but give us the give us the quick and dirty on that, Amber. Yeah, happy to go through this again because it's endlessly fascinating to me. So Tom was married to Real Housewives star Erica Jane. That's your reality TV connection. But I also want to give you a few beats on the actual scandal around Tom Girardi himself that led to these charges. Girardi spent years as one of the most successful plaintiff's attorneys in America. For people that maybe are not Bravo fans, they would know him because he worked on the case at the center of the movie Aaron Brockovich. He won millions, if not billions, of dollars for victims of various disasters and other mass torts. So his clients were things like plane crash victims, people injured in explosions, um, those that were poisoned by companies, and really other serious injury stuff. In 2020, though, that it all came to light that for years and years, many of those clients never got paid the settlements, or at least not the full settlements, or the verdicts that Girardi won on their behalf. And as you said, Alex, if this sounds familiar to some of our listeners, we have definitely talked about Tom Girardi on Pro Se before. And also our own Brandon Lowry spent years writing extensively about the whole scandal. And we did, in fact, have that two-part special on our Explorers channel that's actually called Law360 Explorers, The Fall of Tom Girardi. So if this piques your interest and you haven't already listened to that, I would encourage people to go back and check that out. It's, it's really, really interesting if this is um, something that you want to hear more about because it's quite detailed. It is. It's great. And also, I just realized this is this is like a Tom's heavy episode. <laughs> it sure is. Yeah. We always have these nice little through themes. Lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tom yeah. Law. And, and this Up week next. it is it is Tom. That is our theme. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so now we have an indictment. Can you tell us more about what was in that? Yeah, I'd love to get into this. So Girardi, his son-in-law, who previously worked for the firm Girardi Keese and one of the firm's former chief financial officers, were each indicted on eight counts of wire fraud and four counts of contempt in the Illinois District Court. That's the jurisdiction where the firm misappropriated more than $3 million from a settlement it negotiated for families of plane crash victims. The stolen money in question was meant to compensate five Indonesian families whose relatives died when a Lion Air flight crashed in the Java Sea in 2018. That firm, Girardi Keese, had co-counsel. That's Edelson PC. They represented the families and ultimately settled with Boeing. But when the money got transferred to Girardi Keese, things went wrong. According to the indictment, for several months, Girardi and the other two men at his firm, who were also indicted, lied to Edelson and their mutual clients about why the firm wasn't able to release the settlement funds and went so far as to do things like 
sending clients partial payments to hope, hoping to dissuade them from reporting any theft or suspected theft. They also went to certain steps to try to hide this deception. This is all according to the indictment, by the way. These are allegations, of course. But they went so far as to when they were taking funds from these client accounts, purposely mislabeling them as fees or miscellaneous case costs. Now, those are the charges handed down by the grand jury in Illinois. You know you're having a rough day when you get rung up by two different grand juries. You mentioned there was a, there were some California charges brought as well. What are those about? Girardi was, in fact, also charged with an additional five counts of wire fraud in Los Angeles. Federal authorities there say that he lied to clients and exploited their lack of knowledge about the legal system to the tune of stealing more than $15 million from them. That $15 million figure is for wrongs against five unnamed clients in four cases. But from the indictment, we do have some details about them. In one case, Girardi allegedly told a client that his total settlement was $7.25 million when it was actually $53 million. Hey, that's not the same at all. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can see how this is not great stuff. But there's other cases here, too. I, I think I mentioned there were four cases involved in the California side. Um, allegedly stealing from a widow who had settled in a wrongful death suit around her husband's death, another client um, who settled for injuries caused by a defective medical device, and yet another who had a settlement for a child paralyzed in a car crash. So it could not be more impactful events that have happened in these people's lives. And then, according to the indictment at least, they were re-victimized by their very own attorney. So that's already quite a bit that you've just listed off there. But having read a lot of Brandon's coverage and listened to the podcast and, you know, watched Real Housewives, there's more to this, right? This is kind of just the tip of the iceberg. Totally. The alleged crimes that we've been talking about are just a few of the potential um, things that have gone wrong here. There's many accusations against Girardi and the firm. Brandon has reported that the state bar of California finally disclosed last year that it had received more than 200 complaints against Girardi since the early 1980s. So this has gone on allegedly for a very long time, and there have been many complaints about it. So there's plenty to potentially unpack here. But I think one of the things that's worth noting about this development, while it is on some level, I think for the victims, um, they probably feel like this is a good positive step to see these indictments. But kind of who knows what relief any actual victim from the firm will actually get through a legal proceeding. Uh, creditors have actually forced Girardi and his firm into bankruptcy. And the bankruptcy trustee has estimated upward of $100 million is owed to former clients. That's out of a total liability for Girardi and the firm of more than $500 million to various creditors. So paying that back seems like a real long shot. And then I'd add on top of that, as if this story didn't have enough moving parts, Tom Girardi has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and has been placed under a conservatorship. So all of this is happening sort of in the backdrop of bankruptcy and serious health problems facing Tom Girardi. Also, that former chief financial officer that I mentioned before that was one of the people indicted in Illinois, he was already arrested in November and charged in California with wire fraud. That is actually because he's accused of running a $10 million side fraud on the firm behind Girardi's back. So nesting <laughs> okay. dolls of fraud here. <laughs> Where allegedly. we don't tell the alleged fraudsters about our other alleged secret fraud that you don't even know about, bro. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's 
you can see why I find this so interesting beyond just the Bravo connection. I mean, it really is a very layered and detailed story. And what this adds up for at the end of the day for the actual victims is probably very little relief. But at least now, at this point, they can see that prosecutors are, in fact, pushing to vindicate them on some level. All right. Well, swinging back to this coast, the one that Amber and I are on, we've got a pretty, I would say, a pretty spicy one. Uh, the, the Second Circuit has ordered a new trial for a man who was convicted of gang-related witness retaliation. Now, the, the particulars of that are, are quite interesting, but the real reason we're bringing it up here is because the, the appeals court's decision is a rebuke of sort of a veteran district judge, Jed Rakoff, former pro se guest, Jed Rakoff. Uh, and the, the appeals court ruled that the judge had not done enough to screen potential jurors for anti-gang bias during voir dire, which in effect tilted the scales against the defendant. So now it's, it's back to the drawing board for Rakoff in the Southern District to give this guy a new trial. You know, we really don't get into jury selection stuff that often, but this one seems really interesting to talk about. So can you walk us through it? Yes. And I, you know, I've, I'll be honest, I've overpromised and underdelivered on recurring segments in the past. We all remember the short-lived Cert Grant Corner. Oh, uh, maybe Cert Grant Corner. Maybe it'll come that. back. Haley, I think that's before your time even it joining was. us. It was. Anyway. We also uh, no longer, uh, or at least not recently, we haven't had to trade law with a law. So I know, you've dropped I, several of these. I know. Well, and that's why I'm saying we're, we're not starting a new segment. I'm hoping we could perhaps seed the ground for a special recurring jury selection segment, which I'm just kind of workshopping as au revoir, dear. <laughs> wow. But Alex, we can dream. You've never soared to greater heights. That's perfection. <laughs> well, that's that's really sad. Anyway, <laughs> moving along. What we're dealing with here is the case of a Trinitarios gang member named Christian Nieves. And who he, in 2021, he was convicted and sentenced to three years in prison for a very violent confrontation that he had with another member of the gang who had flipped to cooperate with the government in an unrelated murder case some months prior. The trial was pretty open and shut. There weren't a lot of disputed facts. But the follow-on litigation that we're talking about today has focused on the manner in which Judge Rakoff conducted jury selection. Now, specifically, the attorneys for Nieves, they had asked Rakoff for permission to ask jury candidates, both directly and, and indirectly, about the attitudes that they have and their perception of gangs and gang violence. And their thinking there is that this is an attempt to, I mean, no one would be, no like average juror would be like, yeah, I'm like pro-gang violence. But it's more about testing the waters to see if, if people are unable to render a fair verdict on the facts of a case as soon as they even hear that it's gang-related, whether they have, you know, maybe someone in their family died from gang violence or they've just been inundated with media about gang violence. So that's what they're after. And that's why his attorneys were asking questions, were asking the judge to ask jurors about that. And Rakoff basically said no and took a very heavy hand in doing so. He barred any questioning about gangs or gang issues in voir dire saying that he has long had a policy of not asking what he called attitudinal questions of the pool. He said this is an invasion of privacy and it can lead to kind of distracting digressions and colloquies 
And he's trying to just kind of keep it moving here. So with that, with those instructions in hand, the jury was picked. And like I say, eventually Nieves was tried and convicted in fairly quick fashion, which set us up for an appeal where we swing back to this sort of quagmire of jury selection. Okay. Well, so what did the Second Circuit say specifically about why they think that that Rakoff was wrong in doing this? Also, I don't want it to go unmentioned that Alex wrote in our script here that Rakoff got served some humble pie. And I do appreciate you slipping that in there. Well, he did. I mean, I, <laughs> I, it's, I mean, all you have to do is read the opinion, which, which we'll get to in a second. Basically, the panel is very clear that judges, and this is, this is no groundbreaking precedent here, that judges have a lot of authority over to kind of referee jury selection. That's like one of their, before it goes to a jury, that's one of the last sort of instances where they have a lot to say as a decision maker. And while they have a lot of authority, the panel wrote that it is not, quote, boundless. And they basically wrote that Rakoff overstepped in just kind of out issuing this outright ban on gang-related questions. Now, the precedence in the case law about bias inquiry in voir dire is very heady stuff, and I won't dive too deep into it. I would definitely recommend Cara Salvatore's article on this if you're interested. She goes into it a little bit deeper than I will. But what you need to know is that appeals courts have the authority to reject jury questions that fail to ask about, quote, a pervasive bias in the community. And that's that here is where the panel says that Rakoff went a little sideways. Here's the quote. In our view, it would have been obvious to anyone living in the New York City area at this time that prospective jurors might be predisposed to condemn Nieves by association because the specific thing he was associated with had long, and particularly in the months preceding the trial, been the persistent target of an onslaught of local and national media reports. So that kind of gets to what I was saying before about like, it's definitely fair to just ask if people have some visceral, like, you know, blind spot with regard to gang violence in a way that would keep them from, you know, viewing him in a neutral way when hearing the facts of his case. So what, what the panel is saying is that this issue is very much sort of in the ether for the jury pool and it's wrong for Rakoff to not even address it in any way. They wrote that gang violence is, quote, a material issue likely, indeed certain to arise at trial as the cornerstone of the government's theory of motive. The whole thing is kind of turns on gang violence, so it's fair to ask jurors how they feel about gang violence. So with all that said, it's a new trial for Nieves, and I thought it was interesting that at the lower court level, Rakoff said that he has a long-standing policy of not asking what he considers to be attitudinal questions. Now, we don't know how, how many sort of blind spots that you know, standing policy might have led to, and we're not going to litigate it here. I just thought that was interesting since it's something that he does, he thinks is no big deal, and he does it all the time. And now the Second Circuit is saying, actually, you need to be much more careful here. So uh, just a little bit of a reminder for the judge about what he needs to bear in mind when he's overseeing jury selection.
This week, the Third Circuit dealt a major blow to Johnson & Johnson's talc unit, ruling that a federal bankruptcy judge should have thrown out its Chapter 11 case. J&J had used the controversial Texas two-step maneuver. It created this unit so it could spin off the billions of dollars in talc liability it's dealing with, and then it immediately filed for a Chapter 11 protection. But now the Third Circuit says the company is clearly not in financial distress and the bankruptcy petition wasn't filed in good faith. Today, we're joined by Law360 senior bankruptcy reporter Vince Sullivan to walk us through what all of this means, not just for J&J, but for the future of the Texas two-step maneuver in general. Vince, welcome to Pro Se. Very happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. We're so excited to talk about this. This is really... The Texas two-step, man, it's it's a wild thing. But before we get into that and before we even get into this Third Circuit decision, let's get up to speed on J&J's case. When exactly was this talc unit created and what led up to that? So this has been many years in the making. We all know Johnson & Johnson. Uh, they make hundreds of products that just about everybody has in their house. The word that keeps getting thrown around to describe the company is ubiquitous. Uh, <laughs> At the center of this legal dispute is baby powder, uh, which is made of cosmetic talc. Uh, And a few years ago, Johnson & Johnson started really getting slammed with talc injury lawsuits. The claims are that the baby powder is contaminated with asbestos that causes ovarian cancer and mesothelioma, these really terrible, deadly diseases. They were hit with a just about $5 billion judgment in a Missouri court a couple of years ago. It was later reduced down to only $2 billion. Oh, that's um, it? Yeah. That's, that was it, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they decided that they needed to figure out a way to deal with these tens of thousands of lawsuits that had been filed against it and its subsidiaries. Their first maneuver was to try and settle them in the bankruptcy of another company called uh, Imaris Talc, which was the supplier of the talc that is allegedly contaminated. It's important to note that Johnson & Johnson maintains that its talc is safe, is not contaminated, does not cause any of these illnesses. Um, that did not work out. So they began exploring other alternatives in October of 2021. They executed this controversial maneuver called a Texas two-step where they complete a divisional merger. They take uh, a subsidiary that exists already. They split it into two new subsidiaries. One gets all the good stuff. One gets all the bad stuff. The one that we're talking about here is called LTL Management LLC. Uh, I'm not certain, but I think LTL stands for Legacy Talc Liability. That's that's what we're dealing with (laughs) here. Okay. Okay. So, uh, and then about 48 hours later, they created LTL as a Texas entity, moved it to North Carolina in the Fourth Circuit, and filed it for bankruptcy. And I know that that was controversial right off the bat, and other companies do versions of this move. But within the context of this lawsuit, the plaintiff's attorneys that, are, that, that were representing these claimants that, that are suing over injuries caused by this, that they say are caused by this talc, They oppose this bankruptcy petition. They say it's fraudulent. It's not filed in good faith. But that did not pass muster at the bankruptcy court, right? They refused to throw it out. What was the lower court's ruling on why the company should be allowed to sort of divvy up its assets and liabilities like this? Right. So they originally filed the Chapter 11 in North Carolina. Plaintiffs 
uh, claimants, everybody jumped on and said, this is not okay. Uh, it was quickly transferred to New Jersey, where Johnson & Johnson's headquartered, where there's federal multi-district litigation going on for the tout claims. That judge is the one who decided uh, on the motions to dismiss that were filed by claimants, uh, the unsecured creditors, the Office of the United States Trustee, and some of the uh, firms representing thousands of these talc injury plaintiffs in the tort system. The New Jersey judge, Judge Michael Kaplan, uh, said that, hey, bankruptcy is tailor-made to deal with these kind of issues. This is the perfect forum to deal with what's more than 38,000 tort claims. We're going to be able to do it efficiently in one venue. Everybody's going to be involved. The tort system just can't handle this. J&J, their response was, that is the perfect decision. We agree a thousand percent. Let's get rolling. Mediators were appointed. They started talking, uh, negotiating settlements. But the plaintiffs and the tout claimants were not on board, uh, appealed it directly to the Third Circuit. The Third Circuit came back last week and said that, that was a mistake. Yeah, let's get into that now. What are what were the main issues the Third Circuit kind of pointed to here or, or singled out with? with going about it using the two-step. I'm going to, as many times as we can throw in, you know, Texas two-step into this segment, let's do it because it's so funny. But anyway. It is it is one of the few colorful terms we get in bankruptcy. Yeah, right. We try <laughs> and practice, so yeah. we try and deploy that as often as possible. Yes, so the Third Circuit really focused on the question of good faith, whether this was a good faith uh, bankruptcy filing. And there's a lot of terms of art that come up. Uh, whether it was filed for a valid bankruptcy purpose. And part of that analysis was whether the debtor, LTL management here, was in financial distress. Now, a company does not have to be insolvent to file for bankruptcy. There just has to be a threat of financial distress. Uh, LTL argued that, look, we're getting hit with billion-dollar judgments. It's costing us hundreds of millions of dollars to defend against all of these different claims in you know, dozens of different venues. It's, it's hurting our bottom line here, and we need to deal with this in bankruptcy in an efficient way so it's fair to everyone. One of the concerns with these mass tort cases is uh, the lottery-like results, which is what a lot of supporters of mass tort bankruptcies say uh, will occur in the tort system. We saw it in this case with the Ingham decision, where there was a, just a very, very large judgment against uh, Johnson & Johnson. And that's the fear that somebody will get a, a huge judgment and deplete the assets of the, the company before anybody else can get to the courthouse and get a, a, an adverse judgment against the company. So the Third Circuit came in and said that these costs are a little bit exaggerated. Uh, Johnson & Johnson and LTL both said that those large outsized judgments were rare. They've been able to settle you know, thousands of these cases before they've even gotten to judgments. So that is not Uh, enough to support a financial distress finding, especially in this case, which is a little unique, where Johnson & Johnson and some of its other non-bankrupt subsidiaries are pledging to support LTL and any settlement that they arrive at in a bankruptcy to the tune of more than $65 billion. Uh, The Third Circuit said, you guys are fine financially. Uh, Johnson & Johnson is one of the largest companies in the world, has a better credit rating than the federal government, uh, your bills are, you know, any judgments are going to get paid for the foreseeable future. Okay. And obviously J&J probably was not pleased with, with this decision from the Third Circuit. It's 
you know, really, as I said at the beginning, a massive blow for them and their whole approach. Have they said what they're planning to do now in the wake of this decision? Almost immediately, within an hour of the opinion uh, hitting the docket, Johnson & Johnson said, we're challenging this. This is the wrong decision. Bankruptcy remains the best, most equitable, fair way to deal with all of these claims. That might take the form of a, a petition to have the case reheard by the full Third Circuit. What's probably more likely is uh, a petition for certiorari to the Supreme Court to really deal with this issue. Um, and figure out where to go from here. There's a lot of these mass tort cases pending. Uh, I'm sure there's a few firms out there that are pondering whether they should be uh, commencing a Chapter 11 case to deal with their own liability. So this will be pretty closely watched, especially if the if the high court decides to take up the issue. Yeah, if the high if the high court decides to take it up, I suspect we'll have you back on to rehash uh, all of this. But taking the taking the ruling that we have now from the third circuit just as it is i mean obviously there are there are appellate avenues still to be taken which which you've already laid out for us what can we say definitively about how this could change this maneuver which is common in bankruptcy there the the sort of headlines that floated around were sort of like i don't know has, has the texas two step maneuver been entirely struck down then there was some like oh it's a little bit more attenuated than that what can we say about the limitations that the Third Circuit has put on companies to sort of create entities, you know, that are specifically designed to take on the financial burden of all of these mass tort claims? Right. So I think more notable than all the things that the opinion did say or the things that it didn't say, a lot of practitioners were really eager to see this opinion, thinking that it would be uh, a verdict more or less on the Texas two-step and whether it's a viable maneuver for companies facing these massive, massive liabilities. Uh, it didn't do that. It didn't really address whether that's okay or not. Uh, what it did is it added an extra step for a debtor to have to affirmatively show that they're in financial distress, right? So this was a challenge to their good faith in the LTL case. They That burden falls onto a debtor. Once the good faith is challenged, a debtor has to prove it. So this all this might really do in the short term is if a company comes in, whether it did a Texas two-step or not, but yeah. is trying to deal with their mass tort liability, might add an extra step of litigation at the outset of their bankruptcy, where they're going to have their good faith challenge. They're going to have to prove uh, that they're in financial distress. There's going to be experts that are going to go back and forth for each side to uh, really hammer out whether the financials support the bankruptcy filing. Yeah, so it's not, if I'm, and tell me if I'm explaining this wrong, but it's like, it's not as though the court tackled head on, like whether you're allowed to create a new company specifically to take on the liability of like huge torts and then, and then, or huge tort decisions. And then, you know, that, that company files for bankruptcy, but it sounds like there's maybe just a little more scrutiny paid to whether that company is in distress. Is that like generally correct? That's correct. Yes. It, it didn't establish a rule or a bar for uh, whether it's a Texas two-step or just a, a straight uh, Chapter 11 filing. What it did do is make a debtor, whether it's one of these, uh, there's been a lot of pejorative terms used for what these companies <laughs> are called, but uh, yeah. for the sake of fairness, uh, I'll call it a, a newly created entity Mm -hmm. uh, to to hold this liability, <laughs> a liability bag, so to so to sure, so yeah. to speak. 
um, you know, it's going to add an extra step. Uh, a lot of them come in with support from their parent companies, the ones that face the ultimate liability, uh, these funding or pledge agreements, uh, in the case of LTL, about $65 billion. So that's going to be something that debtors are going to think about coming into bankruptcy before they file their petitions. Is look, what is our financial relationship? What are we willing to pledge here? And is that something that's going to impact whether we're able to stay in Chapter 11? Man, fascinating stuff. And, and sure to get even more interesting if this does make its way to the Supreme Court. Vince, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's been a pleasure. Very happy to be here. Thanks again. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Alex, you brought one to us that I just can't wait to dig into. We had a whole thing that was going to happen in this section of the show. And then our friends over at The Cut did us a great service by foisting some just pharmaceutical-grade take fuel into the internet. Basically, they issued a list of, it's like 150 items on this list. You know, we, we talk about the law. These are like social laws in a way. These are what they call yes. the new etiquette rules for interpersonal activities in the year 2023. There's, it's, brought, it, it's broken down by, you know, what you do, what, what are the sort of codes of conduct with you and your partner, you and your friends, you in a restaurant, you with your kids, whoever. And, you know, just blasting it out into the ether for people to say, this is insane, or this is right on. More people need to see it. I really respect the hustle. And I just wanted us to touch on a few here that stood out to us in a positive or negative way. So, sure, like which ones would we codify into the law of the land and which ones would we veto, basically? Sure, whatever, whatever spoke sure. to you. And again, there's like a, there's, there's over 100 things on this list. So okay. I'll open the floor to you, Amber, if you like. I, I've, yeah, I'm really hot to trot on this. I have plenty to okay. say. <laughs> <laughs> so when you sent it, it is a very lengthy list. And I've read the whole thing. It's, I mean, it's fun. But... I honed in on the work-related ones because I felt like that would, that would be good for us to talk about since we are all colleagues. Good point. Um, there are two that I want to bring up, but I promise I'll be quick. One is it's okay to email, text, or DM anyone at any hour. This was a controversial one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I personally agree with the take of the piece, which was the reason that's okay is that it's incumbent upon the receiver to set their boundaries of like turning off devices, setting them to do not disturb, whatever. And so the sender shouldn't have to worry about that, shouldn't have to like guess people's schedules, that they can just send it whenever, knowing that the receiver should be the one to handle how it gets to them. And I like that take because I am a night owl. So if this absolves me of any guilt about sending a message at like two in the morning, good for me. I quasi agree because I'm also a night owl. Um, but I will say... This is what email scheduling is for. Oh, I use that extensively. <laughs> I, I agree. Okay. If, yeah. If you ever receive an email from me at 8 a.m. Pacific. Sure. That, that was scheduled that was the, night the night before. I guarantee. Um, yeah. 9 a.m. Eastern is. Uh, yeah. I sent that the night before. That is nice. always true. Uh-huh. Uh, what was the other one? Amber? You said okay. there was two. Now, I actually want your all's opinion on this one because I am the manager uh, within this group. I don't know how I feel about this. It makes me a tiny bit sad, I think. If you're a boss and you see your employees in the wild, greet them warmly, but briskly. 
basically saying like nobody wants to run into their boss. Amber, right? Kind of hurt my feelings. Well, you gotta well, not take that personally. I I agree with the take. Now, here's the difference, Amber. You and I are friendly. Like this would not apply to you and me because we have been friends for many years now. I think it's more intended to be read as just like a neutral, like if that is the extent of your relationship with sure. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And like as a default, yes, I think, you know, make a minute or two of polite chit chat and say, hey, gotta be going. You did contextualize that well for me, Alex, because that's probably what I would do in real life anyway. Yeah. But I think that Law360, one of the real boons to this company is that I, I think a lot of us are friends. So would not want to just be like, hey, Alex, I uh, gotta go. No, it's, and it's that's, true. you know, yeah. con- context matters. And that's why I think it's more of like a principle than like a hard and fast rule. But it's a good, like, it's a good basis. And then you can adjust it depending on the specific relationship dynamics between the two people. So it sounds like um, we're basically going to codify both of those then. Yeah, I would say so. More Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. Haley, do you want to give us yours? Yeah, I, I'm curious to hear what you both think about the splitting of the dinner bill. Oh, I'm glad somebody mentioned it. Yeah. yeah. It said when you're out with a group of friends, you split the bill evenly every single time, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if you got a salad, someone else got a steak, you split it evenly. I'm a firm believer in this principle. Me too. I have friends who make so much more than me. They yeah. can like, offer to treat. They can always offer or they can yeah. offer to pay more or whatever. There are whatever. escape hatches to the rule, but as I said before, in principle, it just I cuts down on it. so much confusion. And my theory, my theory is also this. Typically, these kind of squabbles about who bought what at the dinner and how you split it up, they're not worth it for the for the fact that they're often people you're going to have a lot of drinks or dinners with in the future. This is so true. So it does tend to even out over It all comes know, out in the time. wash. Yeah. And there was a secondary rule on this list, which I think also helps with it, which is if you are out with someone and you have drinks and they do not, you should offer to pay for the entire tip or something like that to even it out. So that yes. seems simpler to me. I agree. I don't know. It's just, you know, if I'm getting dinner with people who are in big lot, <laughs> I'm well, like, that's on them too to not like, yeah, uh, that gets down to like, who, like, who are you really being friends with? If they don't like understand the different positions that everybody's in, sure. like very true. But yeah. as a general rule, yeah, like I always, I, I just think it evens out in the long run. Like, I mean, I, I mean, I, it probably does. Times, it probably does. Hey, yeah. your times, example yeah. is perfect though, because I remember when I was a lowly, struggling law student, I did have a friend that was a couple years older than me in school and he was working in big law while I was still in school and he just used to take me to dinner. So like, I think sometimes the friends just figure out like, oh yeah, this, yeah. Yeah. this law student cannot afford this. For sure, okay. for sure. The one that I want to talk about is also about sort of dinner etiquette, though in your house, not at a restaurant. And I'll just tip my hand here. This is, a, you know, the, the, the items on this list, some are kind of designed to, prov- to provoke outrage, I think, puzzlement. There's one about if you go to a party and somebody has bowls of cigarettes out, you should be allowed <laughs> to smoke inside, which yeah. is, I don't know what kind of party. Yeah, who has that? To. Just loose cigs in a bowl? Where are these people hanging out? (laughs) I I don't know. Anyway, but the one I want to talk about, I just flat out disagree with. I'll just say it. Not put my finger on the scale here. Don't foist your allergies onto a dinner party. 
This has the whole dynamics of dinner parties completely backwards. I'm 37 years old. I've taken part in my share of dinner parties as both host and guest. And the, the real rule at issue here is you, of course, ask about allergies or dietary restrictions. Can I yes. make the comment that I do think there's a difference between someone is on some crazy diet they're trying versus an allergy? Yes. Uh, so if I mean, you, can friend, make, you can make requests of whatever you want, but certainly I would not ignore someone's actual allergy. Well, let's just say for the sake of yeah. argument that they're actually all things, not even diet. Like, let's even just focus on allergies. Forget, forget diet for a second. Because the, the, the title of the rule is don't foist your allergies onto yeah. a dinner party. Uh -huh. And that's so insane. That's As tough. a host, you have to ask. Now, perhaps there could be an exception if maybe somebody bailed and someone is filling a seat and wasn't sure. initially sort of consulted about it and you just got a seat to fill. It's like, hey, come to my house. The end of this entry says, I would not say a word to my host. At a dinner party, it's about what the host wants to do. Just pick it what you can and then eat when you get home. You're just inviting more. Oh, I think that's more... actually yeah. worse, right? Well, you're inviting I mean, I... questions about whether or not the person likes it. And then it's like, yes. oh, I'm, I'm allergic. The point is, if you're a, if, in my opinion, if you're a, an attentive host, you need to ask and say, like, is anybody veg? Is anybody allergic to tree nuts? Is anybody, you know, sweat onions or something? Like, and you need to go in on that. I thought, thought it was a very weirdly formulated it was. Of, uh, and the example, yeah. the example they provided was like, I was at a dinner party once yeah. and someone who had dietary restrictions showed up with their own meal, essentially. And yeah. I'm kind of like, great. Yeah. If that's what you I need mean, to do. I mean, it's certainly the vibe is a little odd when people do that. But if you're truly that's not trying. Foisting. Yeah, if like, you're trying to be the most considerate possible guest, then you're showing up, you're saying, look, I don't want to impose or make anyone make changes just because I have these restrictions, so I have accommodated. Yeah, I've accommodated yeah, I, myself. I agree with that. I also generally don't like to be in the business of monitoring other people's food. It's so, so weird. Yeah. And, you're, and you're inviting it if, if you, it's so, yeah, it's so strange. Um, anyway. That's how I feel about that one. Um, <laughs> uh, so you tell like, I, I got really worked up about it. Yeah, yeah, it feels like we've got some to kick out of this list, but everybody should really read this article. It's really just, it's going to be fodder for sitting around with your friends with a couple of drinks and debating which ones of these are real for some time to come. It's, it's really got that vibe. It's pretty fun. It is what Alex called take fuel when yeah. he uh, first described <laughs> it this morning. Well, just know we we could have made the entire show out of this. And frankly, we should be applauded for limiting it to 10 minutes here. So good on us. I'm glad <laughs> we have at least a modicum of self-restraint. And thanks for bringing that one, Alex. I had a ball reading that and talking about it with you guys. And thanks for the rest of the show. It was a really great one. Yeah. Another one in the books. Appreciate it. We'd like to thank several people for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Ben Sullivan, our contributing reporters, Brandon Lowry, Cara Salvatore, and Elaine Brasenia. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review, five stars, wherever you listen to podcasts so that other people can more easily find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've discussed today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.